Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience once again on KIXI AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM. Again, I've said you know that probably because you're listening to it now, but if you are listening to it in my podcast, you could be listening to it anytime. Last week, two weeks ago, we celebrated our 300th broadcast of Voices of Experience, at least the ones we've been running for the last several years. So very proud to hit that milestone. And so today we're going to continue with, I think, some really diverse subjects, which we always try to do here. First, I do want to let you know that if you want to listen to the podcast and all those shows we were talking about, you can uh, just Google Voices of Experience. Then when you get to the site, the, the page, there are two Voices of Experience that are ahead of me. One's a government agency and one's Daniels College. Then you can get the Voices of Experience Apple podcast. So there you have it. So let's see, what do we have for today? Welcome to Eric Crema, Eric Ryder. I'm going to ask you to both participate as you always do in the show so well. We're going to be talking to Hina Khan. She is a noted author, a very young author herself, and has done several books. And this is about the third time I've had her on the show. Today, she's written a book. It's about a Pakistani girl that is growing up with anxiety living in this country. And uh, I kind of got my attention. I think you will not enjoy so much what she had to say, but you will appreciate it. Let's put it that way. Another feature is Jack Cavanaugh. And uh, he wrote a book called Always Ireland, an insider's tour of the Emerald Isle. He uh, grew up in Ireland, so he knows a lot about it, moved to the United States, and he started like a tour program to go at various parts of Ireland. So. I felt there's no one better you can talk to about Ireland. I think it's timely because, what, we're in February going into March. People may be thinking about places to go. If you haven't been to Ireland, I think you will really get some great information from him. Meandering Musings, Neil Peterson. He talks about newspapers, his love of newspapers. And uh, there's only Neil can talk about it, per se. And... uh, He's really sorry to see newspapers go, and it's an experience he had going to try to get a newspaper at a hotel, and I think he kind of overreacted, but that's my opinion. Sorry, Neil. But <laughs> I, I don't I don't really miss newspapers that much. I mean, when the Kindle came out years ago, mm-hmm. I instantly fell in love with the Kindle. I don't have that feeling about paperback books. You know, they want to smell it and flip through it. And also, too, you know, we're talking about global warming and all that. We're not chopping down trees like we used to. So all the above. But Neil has a different view on it, and I I know other people do too. How about you, Eric? Both Eric's. Do you have that kind of feeling about newspapers? I was just talking to somebody the other day. I can't remember the last time I sat down and read a newspaper from cover to cover. Uh, I've glanced at them from time to time, but uh, I just think back to being a, a newspaper carrier. You know, that's all. I did too. You know, oh, yeah. the Seattle Times. And uh, it's kind of sad that kids don't have that opportunity as much. Yeah. 
now to go out. And, were you ever a paper boy? I, I was a paper boy. Yeah, yeah. I good can't skills. Imagine, Seattle like, times. Yeah, tossing tossing downloads to uh, your customers <laughs> now would be a whole different thing. Yeah. When you do talk about that, Eric, about tossing the paper, I always like the Tuesdays and Fridays editions yeah. the best because you could fold them easy and throw them. Yep. You could slide them along a deck and see if you could roll it right to the door. I didn't like Wednesdays because they had a lot of advertising, so I didn't care for that. Or Sundays, of course. Sundays. The bulldog, we called them. Remember that? The bulldog? Oh, yeah. Saturdays, they were too light, and they'd blow in the air. So yeah, we'll talk about that more should we move on. Well, I, I just, uh, you know, it does kindle an old memory of just being at the newspaper shack. You get there early and start folding, putting the inserts in and folding them, stuffing them in your sack, get, yes. them, get on your bicycle and go. And I just... That's I, I gotta believe. What were we about twelve to fourteen years old? I, how old were we when we were paper boys? I was forty three. You're forty three. <laughs> <laughs> you driver. I think I was about ten. Yes, yeah, yeah, I was like on the early side. Early. I think. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Glad we talked about that. But yeah, you're right. There is something there. I think that's probably what a lot of that's all about is the nostalgia for newspapers and smelling the ink and things like that. So anyhow, Neil's going to talk about that today. Voices of history. I think you may pretty well get this one. Miracle on Ice took place this week, um, 1980. And uh, also, a rocket was launched from Cape Canaveral at that time with an astronaut aboard which circled the Earth for the first time. It went around the Earth three times, Mm. and it was just a real breakthrough in space. So we're going to talk about that in Voices of History. Timeless classic for today. After a... String of wonderful hits from this band, but they were mostly about romance and love. This timeless classic for today was a departure from that format, and this song set a much more serious commentary on life. That's not enough Mm. to start guessing, I would imagine. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about uh, in solopreneurs section, and again, I call it solopreneurs because these are the things I talk about if you're going into business by yourself, not by yourself solely. You, you, no one does this. No one's an island, but you're running it in a very small way. And so uh, I'm going to talk about thinking about going into business for yourself. You're at that stage. I'm going to suggest things you should ask yourself along the way before you take this step. So what else is there? You guys got anything to add? Well, come no, I was going to say Springs, something California? about I was going to say something about our crummy weather, but I tend to do that a lot. And then I thought of that saying, some, I, who said that uh, that term, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it? That's Mark Twain. Is that Mark Twain? Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, yeah. Okay. I love that saying because it is so true. We always talk about the weather, but there's really nothing you can do about it. <laughs> That's right. Maybe just get an umbrella. Hey, and besides- This is a tough time in Seattle. I know that. This is where you're really <laughs> oh, We're expecting sunshine the next few days, so- I Yeah. Know. Looking forward to it. Unless they're teasing us. You know, coming in on I-5 today, pouring down rain, dark, because it's uh, it was like 7 o'clock, so the sun's still not up around here. It was a little depressing. I got to be honest. It was a tough one. All right. Well, sorry to hear that. I'm not going to say anything about what it's like down here then, because I'll get people really upset and they'll turn the show off. So we'll keep it there from Palm Springs, California for right now. But it's beautiful. All right. Let's get back with Hannah Khan and I will do an intro to her, Eric. Award-winning author 
Hina Khan, she skillfully weaves cultural references about the arts, mental health, social media, parent-child relationships, and her latest book is called Drawing Nina. Let's get into the interview. I interviewed you a couple of years ago about Amina's song, which again, we talked about before, but this is about a young Pakistani-American girl growing up with the challenges associated with kind of the same issues, but she's at a different phase and uh, she has anxieties and panic attacks, and that's part of what's going on in her life. Do I essentially have that correct? Yes, yes. So, yeah, Dina's a you know middle schooler, which, of course, brings its own stress. <laughs> but she also is having these symptoms that she isn't quite understanding as anxiety because they're manifesting like many kids have uh, as stomach aches and nausea and no appetite in the morning. And so that... That progresses to a point where she does experience a panic attack, which is, you know, for anyone who's had one, really terrifying. Uh, and that's when she realizes that it's been anxiety all along and, and something that she needs to, to get help for. You said something about children of all ages or in, no matter what background they have are subject to panic attacks and some of the things you discussed, anxiety. But what would be unique about a Muslim child and how would their panic attacks and anxiety differ from, let's say, someone else in that school? I don't think that the the actual, you know, symptoms or manifestation of the anxiety would would differ, but I think some of the root causes might. And I think, unfortunately, we do see Muslim kids experiencing, you know, higher rates of bullying than other children and discriminatory acts. Unfortunately, it's not something I address head on in this book. You know, Dina's anxieties are more caused by her parents' financial struggles and her own, you know, insecurities around, you know, just growing up and some of the things she wants to pursue artistically, relationships with her family members and other things like that. But um, hopefully it'll, it'll be very relatable to kids of all backgrounds. But the Muslim kids who are reading will realize if they do feel this way, that they're not alone. There's something in your book that says and suggests that it's important that Dina stands up to the bullies. What we're seeing now more and more is is the, the invisible sort of troll on social media who might say something hurtful from afar. And that, of course, presents a whole new slew of of challenges because we don't necessarily know who they are, but we do know that they make us feel bad. And especially for kids who are perhaps venturing into the world of social media for the first time and trying, it's it's complicated for adults. And imagine, you know, for kids, it's that much more scary, but also uh, confusing. And to have a total stranger say something not nice about you for no good reason, you know, can be something difficult to, to confront. Well, that's a very good point that you brought up just there is that when I grew up, there were bullies, of course, but you could look them in the eye mm-hmm. and run or do whatever you need to do to get away from the situation. But now it's a right. total different world where, yes, you these invisible people are making comments about you. That must be hard as a, on a kid, no matter who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on top of that, just as we know, social media itself you know, in terms of getting validation that way or feeling like we're our worth is measured by how many followers we have or how many likes we get or whatever it is. And so, you know, with all of that 
positive quote unquote attention, you know, there's also space for, for really negative attention and, and an unfortunate comparing of ourselves to, to our peers and others, which, you know, always happens, but I feel like it's heightened in this space, especially when, you know, people, as we know, only present a certain aspect of themselves on social media. So it's very easy to feel left out or to feel like you're not good enough. And, and when you're still young and, and developing, it, it can be extra challenging. What do you hope your audience of this book takes away from Dina's story? And first of all, who's the target audience? I like to say everybody of all ages, but the book is, you know, marketed towards kids sort of between third and seventh grade, that that tween age. Um, Dina herself is a middle schooler. Um, but, you know, I feel like anybody who has, you know, struggled with how to express themselves creatively, trying to forge a path for themselves and, and you know, a style of their own, a voice of their own um, might connect with this book. And and especially for those who might be dealing with feelings of anxiety, I hope I hope they'll feel seen and realize that they're not alone and that there's resources out there to, to help. If you were talking to a Pakistani-American middle schooler, what advice would you give them to make it easier while they're going down this path? You know, I would confess to them that when I was growing up, as a Pakistani American child of immigrants, you know, more than 30 years ago, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence and I hid away that part of my identity because I didn't feel comfortable sharing it. And I, I feel like a lot of it was because I didn't have representation in books or anywhere else. And I do think that made a difference. And I really would advise the kids I meet today to, you know, just be proud of who you are and celebrate your identity and your community and, and, the beautiful things that includes. They're all things that I highlight and, and talk about in all of my books now, even though I didn't when I was younger. Like Dina, kids could turn to the arts to try to express themselves creatively and really explore the questions that they're wrestling with and, and try to own their narrative rather than having others write it for them. Anything else before we go? Just would love to hear from readers. I love connecting with people who've read my books and I always read reviews. So please do check out my books at hannahan.com. You can connect with me on social media at Hanahan Books. I read every review that anyone leaves out there and I'm very grateful for all of them. So yeah, thank you. And, and please check out Drawing Dina, which comes out next week. Are you coming to the Seattle area for a book signing anytime in the near future? I hope so. I actually have four more books coming out this year after Dina. And I hope one of them brings me back to Seattle because it's one of my absolute favorite cities in this country um, and just beautiful. And I know it's a book loving community. So I really, really hope to be back. All right. Thank you so much to Hina Khan for that interview. Enjoyed perusing her book and hope you do too. If you're interested in getting a copy of that book and other books she's written, <clears throat> excuse me, you can uh, just uh, Google drawing Dina, Drawing Dina the book, and that's D-E-E-N-A, Drawing Dina, and you will be able to come up with that book. Thanks again, Hina Khan. We'll have you back in the near future. All right, so if you're thinking about going into business for yourself and you're at that stage of not knowing whether you want to do it or not, I would just like to help give you some helpful hints as to what it, you should be considering, the things you should really be thinking about at this stage. And so, for example, if you are taking that step and you've made that decision, 
I think you'll be in a stronger position to succeed if you first commit to being the entrepreneur first, and that becomes your passion. I touched on this last week, but I think it's so important. People get hung up on following your passion and so much the money will follow. I don't believe that. I believe your passion is becoming an entrepreneur because people really say those statements quite a bit and people follow that. I got to think of what makes me happy, but that has nothing to do with succeeding in business in my estimation. Again, being in love with being an entrepreneur and what that brings. And why do you want to be an entrepreneur? The people that I interviewed when I did have a radio show just dedicated to self-employment several years ago, and it was called Sustaining Your Business. It was really when you step back and look at and how they made it, it's that they would look and find a niche and solve a problem. That was the two things that they did. Here's an example. I saw a Today Show segment years ago. There was a woman on there who was an attorney. I think she was from Portland, Oregon. And she was talking about uh, something that she did. She was pregnant. She took a leave. And then she was working around the house and making, uh, getting the baby room ready for when the baby arrived. So she was out trying to find stencils and things like that, balloons on the wall, painting the walls and things like that. And she found out that, gosh, when she was looking at all these things, they were really expensive, what was out there. And so... In that moment, she started thinking, boy, this is something, this is what I'm talking about. This is something that, this is a problem. This is a niche. Pregnant uh, woman, having a baby, father, same situation. But she started looking at this and started designing some stencils that you could paint around and were much less expensive. Hmm. Computers were coming out. She got it onto there. She had a mail order business, which she started essentially. And it was affordable. And by the time she had the baby and two months later or so, she was uh, in business there. She left the law firm. She was making so much money on this because she kept her brain open to and let it come to her essentially. And those, again, I know I say it all the time, there was a niche there a niche within a niche, but I don't have to go down that road no, right now, and she solved the problem. I say all this now, and the reason I do is because I remember at the end of the broadcast, the person said, well, you followed your passion, and the money followed. She was like, no, I didn't do that. You see, mm-hmm. it, people knee-jerk react to that, and I've seen that a few times with broadcasters. Oprah Winfrey did that. That's another example some other time when the person just looked in the camera and said, no, that's not what I did. I found something that people needed. That's what I'm submitting now. If you committed to being an entrepreneur, fine. But find something that you can market and something that people need. And it could be something that you run across that you need, like she did, and then there is a business there. So, class, that's it for today. Any comments? Well, just a quick question for you, actually. Do you think it's possible to boil down to a sentence or maybe a a couple of words of what is it inside people that make them entrepreneurs? Like, is it, is it curiosity? Is it drive? Is it just, what is it? What is it that sets them apart? I think the first thing is if they grew up in a family that their father or mother was an entrepreneur, they grew up in that environment. Mm. 
They're either going to follow it or they're going to be repulsed by it. I've seen both sides because when you grow up in a family like that, you may not be able to get the new car or you can't go go on these great vacations that if you had a stable salary, you could do more of that. Mm. But you have that sort of growing up part of it that is with you. And again, the extremes, you either jump into it or you go the other way. Um, Or you're sitting in, and I think many cases like my own, I can speak for, is that you've gone into the world, you're working for other companies, you're working for businesses, you're working for government, which I did all of that. And then you hit a point going, I never even considered entrepreneurship until I about a year from starting it. it was the last thing on my mind. There are entrepreneurs I've interviewed that they knew they wanted to do this when they were five years old. That's not me. And I think most people are in that category. They hit a point where they go, this isn't working for me. I'm going to give this a shot, basically, mm-hmm. and see how it works. And that's kind of what I did. And I think a lot of people do it that way. And um, the other thing I wanted to say before we close this out today, find a mentor, find somebody, whatever you do, whatever you decide you want to do, pick out someone who's about five or 10 years ahead of you and go see them. And people are very generous with their time. They will share their knowledge and their experience They're a voice of experience in this area. Always do that. I did that. Larry Coffin was my mentor and he really helped me out a great deal. So anyhow, that's kind of what I feel about that. Great information, Paul. And I'd welcome everyone to go to VoicesOfExperience.com. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Take the uh, the test, take the quiz, and see if maybe you have that inside you, that entrepreneurial spirit. All right. Meandering Musings with Neil Peterson coming up in just a moment. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Newspapers. Where have they gone? Recently, when I was in Tampa, Florida at a Marriott hotel, I had an experience that shocked me. I went into the shop in the hotel that supplies all kinds of knickknacks. Water, ice cream, souvenirs, magazines, chewing gum, travel sizes of toothpaste and shaving lotion, ad infinitum. I looked for the newspapers. I looked and looked. Finally, I went to the woman at the cash register and asked her where the newspapers were located. She, matter-of-factly, told me, that they don't carry newspapers anymore. What? I said, you don't carry newspapers. 
No, sir, we haven't carried them for some time, she responded. Holy cow, you have to be kidding me, I said. No, sir, I'm not. I'm so sorry, she said. What in the heck is happening in this world we live in when you cannot even purchase a print edition, a hard copy of a newspaper, either a national one or a local one? Yes, I'm fully aware of the dramatic decline in newspapers in this country over the last 18 years. Since 2005, 25%, a total of 2,100 of the nation's weekly and daily newspapers have gone out of business. Yes, I'm also aware that the circulation of newspapers in print has decreased significantly. For example, in print circulation dropped 55% in the five years between 2015 and 2020. Yes, I also realize that many people now receive their newspapers electronically. I happen to be one of them. I subscribe to the electronic versions of five newspapers. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Seattle Times, and the Desert Sun in Palm Springs, California. I read them every day. I take the first hour of my day to consume all of them. I must admit that I'm a news junkie. The reason I subscribe to the electronic versions of these papers is because of the convenience and the comfort of knowing that no matter where I'm located on a particular day, I can always get the news from newspaper sources that I have some confidence in. Yet, nevertheless, it's one thing to have a dramatic decline in circulation. It's another thing to be unable to find a newspaper in print to be purchased. You would, at a minimum, expect that a hotel a convenience store, an airport, a train station, a building lobby, to name a few locations, would have newspapers available to purchase. I don't know about you, but I still really crave, admittedly occasionally, the opportunity to purchase a real printed version of a national or local paper. You may ask why. For one thing, I love the feel of the paper. One of our five senses is touch and touch triggers a reaction. Psychologists tell us that whatever we have in our hands, we feel we own. And research shows that that makes it more valuable to us. I like the tactility of a newspaper. I like the process of turning the pages. I like to fold the pages. Another reason I like newspapers is because of our sense of smell. I love the smell of the printed paper of newsprint. The smell comes from a chemical process impacting the paper and print called acid hydrolysis, which in turn gives off compounds into the air with hints of vanilla, almond, and musky florals. Third, as I may have shared before, I am dyslexic, and every chance I get to see a picture, especially one that has colors, I'm immediately drawn to it. Newspapers have lots of eye-catching pictures. This appeals to my sense of sight. I even love the fact that newsprint comes off on my hands. Reading a newspaper can be messy. That's okay with me. The reason this happens is that newsprint is often low quality and applied quickly on usually recycled paper 
which can fairly easily come off when coming into contact with one's fingers and hands. I also love the many sections that a newspaper has to offer. In particular, the Sunday editions get me all excited because of its numerous components. For years, I would get the Sunday edition of the New York Times, knowing full well that I'd still be reading certain sections as late as Thursday in the coming week. Believe it or not, I even like to scan the ads. I'm curious about who's advertising and the techniques that they're using to draw customers. I also travel a fair amount, and I always want to buy a copy of the local newspaper wherever I happen to be. The reason being that it's a way to get a pulse on what the current issues are in that community. And finally, frankly, I find that reading a printed newspaper often stimulates my thinking. It gets my brain rummaging about some topic. I can almost feel the ideas bouncing from one side to the other side of my brain. I often pause when I'm reading a newspaper to just ponder. For all of these reasons, I occasionally like to be able to purchase a real in-print edition of a newspaper. The print edition of newspapers, where have they gone? Be sure to subscribe to Meandering Musings wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more about Neil Peterson and to read more Meandering Musings and travel essays, visit neilstrips.com. That's neilstrips.com. Like the podcast? Help us grow our listenership. Tell your friends about Meandering Musings and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome to today's Voices of History. Tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. All right, there you go. Gosh, it harkens back to the day when, well, we have an adult in the White House now, but certainly that was a great time for our country. And brings nostalgia back. So anyhow, uh, voices of history for today. John Glenn was Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps. He flew nearly 150 combat missions during World War II and during the Korean War. In 1957, he made the first nonstop supersonic flight across the United States, flying from Los Angeles to New York in three hours and 23 minutes. And then on February 21st, 1962, he launched into space aboard the Friendship 7. It was a supercraft on the first orbit spaceflight that circled the Earth three times. Now, towards the end of the third rotation around the Earth, the automatic control system began to malfunction. The capsule was making uncontrolled erratic movements, and John Glenn switched to manual control and regained command of the capsule. Now, during its descent to Earth, straps holding the retro rockets gave way and caused Glenn to lose radio contact with mission control for about four minutes. Glenn's voice finally crackled through the loudspeaker after that, and Friendship 7 splashed down safely in the Atlantic Ocean, 
He was picked up by the U.S. destroyer Noah, and his first words upon stepping out of the capsule onto the deck, it was hot in there. <laughs> Wasn't exactly one small step for, you know, man, or uh, one giant leap for mankind, but that's what John Glenn had to say. What a life that that guy had. I mean, come on. Yeah, a heck of you a know, career. World War II, the Korean War, and then he was a U.S. senator. I mean, pretty amazing. I, I didn't know that about his, um, really about his uh, missions, combat missions in World War II and the Korean War. I knew about him going around the uh, world, but um, anyhow, any yeah. thoughts? Uh, just makes my career feel real small. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, wow, what have I done lately? That's what I had. Some, However, yeah, some yeah, people, some people have the right stuff. The right? oh, come on. <laughs> oh, leave it to Eric. John Glenn was one of them. That was good. No, you were right about that. And here's some trivia on a personal level. He was given a ticket tape parade in New York on March first, nineteen sixty-two, and I was at that parade. Oh wow! Wow. And uh, I was like eight years old. And then um, about three weeks later, we were on our way moving to Seattle. But I do remember that. In full disclosure, <laughs> we actually missed the actual parade because we were in a subway and he'd passed through or something like that. But we did see all of the uh, graffiti and, and that. So it was quite exciting. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> just had to let people know that. But March 1st, 1962. Um, on February 22nd, 1980, the U.S. hockey team beats the Soviets in what immediately became known as the Miracle on Ice. To say that the U.S. hockey team made up of college players was an underdog to the Soviet hockey team would be putting it mildly. The Soviet team had won four Olympic gold medals dating back to 1964. They had only lost one Olympic hockey game since 1968. So that was probably one of the at least top 10, and I'd say top five sports stories of all times. And if you ever want just a great popcorn movie, watch. There was a movie done about it with Kurt Russell. He played the um, coach. Was it called yes. Mir Miracle on Ice? Miracle on Ice. There you go. Yeah. Great movie. Agreed. I did see that years ago. Even though you know the ending, it's still a fun movie. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, it was just the impossible odds. And certainly that was one of them. Yeah. High, you know, college hockey players being able to do that. Well, and, uh, I was just going to say there's a, there's a few sporting events in my life that I've actually watched live and remember. And that's one of them. Mm. You know, um, I'm sure you have a lot of them, eh, eh Paul? Where you just were at an event I, or saw an event, and you're just like, I know this is history. Right. Uh, I could go through some of those now, but I will not because of time. But I hate to admit it. I didn't see that. I missed it. Oh. Yeah. Ouch. I think part of it was I didn't think they had a chance. <laughs> you're like, you wrote them off. <laughs> right. And just on a more local level, courtesy of historylink.org, on February 15th, 1852, not Long after the landing at Alki Point in West Seattle, where I live, I wasn't around then. Seattle pioneers Arthur Denny, Carson Boren, and William Bell staked their first claim across the bay in Elliott Bay in downtown Seattle. What I understand is where they came in, first of all, in 1852, they found out that the winds from the north and the, the winds that came into and spun were a very difficult place to land ships. So they went into more of a safe harbor 
literally, and that's when downtown Seattle became downtown Seattle. Otherwise, it could have been Alki. But there you have it. Very cool. Well, they had to go to downtown because that's where their streets were. That's true. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> there's Denny, there's Bell, there's Boren. Right. They needed to get their <laughs> names after a street, and they couldn't do that in West Seattle, apparently. They were looking to the future. <laughs> First boat to run aground. <laughs> right. <laughs> Many more to come. All right. Voices of History for today. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. All right, so we're uh, back, Voices of Experience. Thanks for joining us. We're kind of wrapping things up. We're actually heading towards the... Second half, 15, 20 minutes to go. We have a great interview coming up in just a few moments. Always Ireland. I think you'll really enjoy this uh, with Jack Cavanaugh. I just ran across something I just wanted to read here. I, I like this, these types of things. And the person who sent me this was um, Turianne Jackson. She is the wife of the late, great broadcaster, Keith Jackson. I'm sure you've heard of him. She always sends me these really neat emails, whether it's with pictures around the world. There's always some sort of uh, something magical about everything she sends out. And this is what she sent out to me uh, this last week. And it had to do with terms that if you're a baby boomer or even beyond that, you will remember these terms if they've all but disappeared. Let me just get into a couple of those. For first of all, the reason why the person that she got this from, it was titled Our Lost Vocabulary. And she delved into this further because she said to her son about driving an old jalopy. And then the son looked at her and said, what the heck is a jalopy? So here you go. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that term. Uh, There's others like, for example, hunky-dory. You don't hear these anymore. Um, Don't touch that dial. Okay. Carbon copy. You sound like a broken record. Hung out to dry. Heavens to Betsy. G. Willikers. Holy moly. (laughs) In like Flynn. Living the life of Riley. Uh, Let's see. Not for all the tea in China. Yep. How how often have you heard that one? You remember all these guys? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've definitely heard them over my lifetime, but... uh... I think some of them were used ironically. <laughs> I used to think it was in like Flint for some reason. I didn't know. That's Earl, what I, I thought too. I didn't know who Earl Flynn was until I later I looked it up. Okay, tell us this. I didn't know what it was either. I said the same thing. Well, well, who was Earl Flynn again? What, he's what a famous he... actor from, I think he did make it into the talkies, but I think he was primarily um, silent film. Um, and uh, he always played a dashing character and he would, He'd be like swashbuckler. That's hard for me to say, swashbuckler. And he would come through the windows with such grace, you know, and and take on an adversary or kiss the girl or whatever. He'd come flying in and in like Flynn. That's what I understand it to mean. Okay. Hmm. Very good. Well, online. uh... Oh, dang it. (laughs) Online has been proving me wrong now for 20 years. There are some that say that... uh, uh, it refers to Edward J. Flynn, 
who was a New York City political boss who became a campaign manager for the Democratic Party during FDR's presidency. Boss Flynn's Democratic Party machine exercised absolute political control over the Bronx. The candidates he backed were almost automatically in. Oh, I don't believe that one. one. I like mine better. (laughs) You guys guys can argue about this later, okay? (laughs) I'm kidding. Don't take any wooden nickels. Now, I looked that one up. I remember that one. Didn't know what it meant. But from what I read, it was early in the 20th century when people from the rural areas would go into the city for the weekend or whatever, Hmm. and they'd be warned that these city slickers are going Uh to give you fake nickels of wood (laughs) because there were nickels that were made for centennial celebrations or something like that. But don't take any wooden nickels. Great advice. A wooden nickel now probably more valuable than an actual nickel. nickel. Yeah. (laughs) Very true. Fair trade. (laughs) So again, that's for what it's worth department. I love stuff like that. And there's a lot more, but we'll have to forego that to another day. So see you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. <laughs> All right, there we go. Button that one up. All right, so um, let's get into my interview. I had this about a year ago with um, Jack, and I wanted to play it again. Jack Cavanaugh, again, I mentioned at the beginning, he grew up in Ireland, and he has led many tours to his homeland. And the book he published was by National Geographic, and it has a lot of backstories in Ireland, photos, whatever. And again, in the spirit of, let's say you're wanting to decide some vacation to take in the future, it's February, you're making plans, maybe Ireland should be one you should consider. So let's hear my interview with Jack um, Cavanaugh from about a year ago. Jack, you uh, were born in Ireland, then came to the United States. What was your trajectory? Why did you do that? Well, work, really. I wanted to be a journalist, and I was working for a Dublin paper called the the Irish Press, a very long-established paper. But it was on its way down, and it uh, I, I had a feeling it was about to go out of business, and I was proved right a year later. So I came over in 1994 for the World Cup. Um, I did a bit of sports reporting. I came over for the Soccer World Cup in America in 1994, and I looked around and I found a job in the Philadelphia region. And so when did you get into the tour business? Well, that came about because I've been working for National Geographic since 2001 and various guises. I've been an editor uh, for international editions and then I worked for books. I, I was an editor of tour guides. The National Geographic has a wing called the National Geographic Expeditions and they send various experts, as they're called, around with with the, the groups who give lectures and introduce people to the culture and, and the country. So they, they came to me and they said, would you like to go to Ireland for a 10-day tour um, and stay in all these lovely hotels and, and talk to people about Ireland? And I said, yes, and it's wonderful. It's a great, great way to see my homeland again, you know. Oh, of course. That's a nice luxury to have. Let's get into, let's say, people going to Ireland. And let's say someone has a week to go to Ireland. That's all they have. They want to see it for the first time. Where would you suggest they go? Well, I always say to, to people going to Ireland is don't overschedule it because you'll, you'll miss the real joy of Ireland, which is the people. The people are the, are the real treasure of Ireland. 
people love to talk in Ireland and people are very open and interested about other people. They'll, they'll give you the time to talk. So if you're rushing around from one place to the other and seeing all these places, you miss out on, you know, what, what makes Ireland special, which is the people and its culture and just, just that warm feeling of, you know, being with people who are who, who have time to talk. And I, I really think that you shouldn't try and do too much. But if you have a week... Maybe go to Dublin, maybe go to um, Galway and pick one other place, maybe Kerry, but Kerry is kind of distant, so maybe somewhere like uh, Kilkenny. Kilkenny is a lovely medieval town. It's got fabulous um, nightlife. It's got a beautiful um, medieval museum, one of the best in the world now, in St. Mary's Church, and they operate the medieval mile walking tours where you see the whole of, of Kilkenny. Really lovely place to spend a couple of days and it's all very local so you can walk everywhere. But really, Paul, I'd say don't try and do too much. Just enjoy enjoy every day in Ireland, you know, and, and be relaxed about it. I couldn't agree more. Actually, I did go to Ireland in 1989. Uh, my ancestry goes back to Boyle, Roscommon, and we actually oh, were able to... Well. Oh, good. Good to hear. And, you know, we went there, we landed in Shannon, but we had a person who went to Ireland in advance and said what you said. We had a week, and he said, keep it yeah. close to the vest. And you are so right. We were able to see a lot of the Irish people, and it's everything you say, that they want to talk and mm-hmm. talk, and they're proud of their country, and you learn so much. Now, how about, let's say, you have a month to go. What would you suggest then? Well, obviously, go to all the big places like Dublin. Go to Kerry. Kerry's great if you have the time to explore. It's, it's a vast county in the southwest of Ireland on the Atlantic. Absolutely beautiful hills, really scenic places. A lovely town called Dingle. You can go and explore. It's a very rich cultural place. There's, there's a marvellous place called the Dishcart Centre of Spirituality in Dingle, which has, um, it's a real little hidden gem. It's got 12 stained glass windows by Harry Clark, a famous Irish artist. And you can walk in there and just make a little contribution to the convent. It's in a convent and see these glorious works of art. Right across the street, you've got what I call the, the 10 most musical uh, square feet in Ireland, which is the Dingle Record Shop. You can have a long chat about music because they know everything about music in there and they're happy to share it with you. I spent like hours in there researching this book. Um, you can go up to Clare, Doolan, tiny little village, four pubs, but it's the home of um, traditional Irish music and all those pubs will be hopping every night with a, a lovely music session. Go to Galway, explore Galway, which is... I call Galway the heart of Ireland because it's the Gaelic heart of Ireland. You know, they speak Irish uh, in in that region, the Gaeltacht region. Um, Galway is such a vibrant city for the arts. There's always a festival going on. There's the Galway races. There's the International Arts Festival. There's a Guinness and Oyster Festival in in September. Sorry, October and I think in April there's a poetry uh, festival. There's always something happening in Galway. Lovely place. And then if you have the time, go up to Donegal, which I kind of rediscovered doing this book. And it's a, it's a gem. It's a little bit distant, and it's harder to get to than the rest of the country because there's only one road going from the Republic. But it's well worth the time to get up there. I, I was describing to a friend of mine, and I said it's like the Louisiana of Ireland in that it, it kind of marches to its own drum, you know. Um, the music is a little bit different. The fabulous, rich culture of music singing up there. 
Um, and there's all kind of surprising things that you come across. Like I came across this place called Wild Ireland, which is a wildlife refuge. Um, and the man up there is this passionate lawyer, Killian McLaughlin. And he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to recreate the Celtic rainforest of thousands of years ago by reintroducing all these, these animals that have gone extinct, like the wolf, the bear, birds, etc. But magical day I had it at Wild Ireland. Oh, I could go on Belfast. You, there's so much to do. Ireland is is really, really, you know, it's it's a, it's a fascinating place because there's so much going on in such a small area that if you have a month, you're you're in for the best month of your life. You know. That's good to hear. I'm going to talk about your book in a moment, or I'll talk about it right now. Actually, always Ireland. It's one of the finest publications I've seen pulled together ever. I mean, oh, thank you. The Photographs, I think are over 300, are incredible. And just the history and the detail that you go into is absolutely wonderful. I just know so much more about it. I mean, you even get into Irish history, the insider history tips to kind of make you Mm -hmm. feel you're learning something that you didn't know before. When people visit and go on your tours, what surprises them most about Ireland that they didn't know a few things. They, they're, they're surprised how, how how we like satire. Satire is big in Ireland, and, and, and that sense of irony and kind of dark humour, and that kind of comes about, I think, from history. And we go into this in the book that um, it's a kind of subversive way of, of having a go at authority. Irish people are pretty irreverent, you know, when it comes to authority and government and all this kind of thing. Um, so we go into the history of that in, in, in the book, and I talk to, to my guests on the tour, and they're always kind of warm to this theme for some reason. They kind of like this Irish subversiveness of, of irreverence towards authority. It brings out the Irish in people, I think, you know. The other thing they're surprised with is how small the country is. You know, we're um, we're only like 5.4 million people. I, I, I tell the story, Paul, that I was in D.C. a few years ago when I worked there and I was at a bus stop and I was reading a book by Colm Tobin, Irish novelist, and I felt this presence over my shoulder, a guy trying to see what the book was. So I fell into conversation with him and he was asking me all the right questions about Ireland. And then he said, how many people are there in Ireland, you know? And I said, uh, well, at the last count, I said there was 4.5 million at the last census. And he looked at me in amazement and he said, what? He said, for 4.5 million people, you guys make a hell of a racket, you know? And that's true. Like, he was talking culturally about, you know, the the, the amount of uh, literature that's come out of Ireland and the, the music and whatnot. But I, I think that surprises people, you know, that it's such a, a tiny country, really. I didn't know that before I went as well, and I was surprised. I mean, it's not, that's not the population, about half of the state of Washington. So it is yeah, quite yeah. amazing that there's so little numbers of people what do you think the biggest the, myth the other side of the equation paul is that there's 20 million of us abroad and we, we do get into that in the book you know the irish abroad and, and the stamp they've had on the world so we go into the irish in america the irish in europe etc you know are there people moving there quite a bit now there's been a huge uptick in uh, applications for passports uh, partly because of Brexit, of course, um, people wanted a European passport. And there's there's a whole lot of Irish people, of course, living in Britain for years. You know, uh, I have, I think, six, six people in my family, six cousins of mine are married to English people and living in Britain. So, you know, that causes all kinds of complications when they, <laughs> when they want to go to France for their holidays or whatever they have to. But I think a lot of people are just 
saying, you know, Ireland is, is a, a great place now. And it's come a long, long way in terms of economics and that. A lot of people want to retire there. St. Patrick's Day. What is the biggest myth about that event? <laughs> There's lots of myths about it. The one thing that, that mystifies me, I must say, is the green beer thing. You know, I, <laughs> I can never understand that. I, I always compare it. I, I tease my American friends here and I say, look, you know, do, do you dye your turkey red, white, and blue and eat it on Thanksgiving? Because that's what you're doing to the to the beer. You know, it's, we're just joking. But um, there's a lot in the book about St. Patrick and, and who he was. And I think one surprising thing that a lot of people don't realize is that St. Patrick was an immigrant. He wasn't Irish. He was he was a slave actually brought over from Britain, you know. Um, and I think that's uh, a very relevant thing to remember in this day and age. Anything else before we go, Jack? No, I just encourage everyone to go to Ireland once because, as I said, it's a, it's a great place for people. People love to talk in Ireland and, and you'll be very, very welcome there. All right, that was uh, Jack Cavanaugh. I uh, loved that interview with him. I love Ireland. That's where my ancestry goes back. And I was there once, and I definitely he makes me want to go back. And I said I'd do that last year, and I didn't. I'm going to do that sooner than later. But anyhow, you can um, Google Always Ireland, and then you can get a copy of his book, Always Ireland. is is a beautiful book. And again, I'm not paid any promotional fees for this. That is the, you know, right from the... My mouth. Anyhow, so uh, always Ireland, Jack Cavanaugh. That's it for today. That's all the time we have for Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and along with Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, want to thank you for joining us today. Voices of Experience airs 3 p.m. in simulcast with Hubbard's sister, sta- sister station, KKNW, AM 1150, and is rebroadcast on Sundays at 11 a.m. Quote of the week, it is useless to try and hold a person to anything he says while he's madly in love, drunk, or running for office. Shirley MacLaine. This week's Timeless Classic coming up next. You won't hear it, though, on the podcast because of licensing issues. Have a great rest of the week.